Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to The Fader Interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, Editorial Director of The Fader. Andrew Savage has been making New York music since the moment he moved to his first Brooklyn apartment. Born and raised in Denton, Texas, home to the University of Texas' School of Music and, by extension, a vital independent music scene, Savage had already made smart indie rock records, fronting teenage cool kids, and more left-field post-punk as one half of Ferguson Geronimo, before going out east. But parquet courts would be different. In a conversation with Interview Magazine in 2012, he said, We knew that we were going to be a New York band from the beginning. You can hear it in the metronomic churn of Stoned and Starving, the anxious polemic inside NYC Observation, and the slick bounce of walking at a downtown pace. Tracks spread out across a decade, but united by their fascination with the city. So, Savage's second solo album, Several Songs About Fire, is something new. He's left New York, he's itinerant at the moment because there's a tour coming up, but he's settling in Paris. And though he hadn't made the choice to relocate when he sat down to write this record, his reasons for leaving aren't too hard to pass. After more than a decade in the same apartment in the same city in the same country, trying to get by as a musician and a painter, Savage wanted a life more conducive to survival, and maybe even more than that. That's why he insists that this, like all his albums, is ultimately hopeful. Delicate and melancholic in some places, utopian and playful in others, poetic and affecting throughout. A few days ago, I called Savage, who was in London, a couple of hours away from the west of England, where he recorded several songs about fire, to talk about leaving New York and learning to live alone. So when did you leave New York to go to Paris? Uh, that would that would have been in May. I realized that in some sense, the album is a long form answer to this question, but why? Why did I leave the U.S.? That's an answer that would take even longer than an album, I think. But um, I guess in a nutshell, healthcare would be a big reason, having access to it, which you just don't in the States, unless you have money. And I completely ideologically disagree with that. And I just think it's so completely wrong in so many ways even compared to other Western democracies, which are becoming increasingly beholden to corporate interests, no one is quite as beholden to corporate interest as the way the American government is. And that comes out in some really uncomfortable ways. And one of those ways is access to healthcare. And another one of those ways is how we have just massive gun violence because there's a industry with massive government influence that you know, keeps money flowing into it. And it's the same, the, the, the medical industry and the gun industry are very similar in that regard. And we're also, you know, even though he's not president now, we're also still very much living in the Trump era. Trumpism is Pandora's box that has been opened, you know. So there's a lot, there, there, there's just, a, there's a lot of reasons. There's climate reasons as well. Um, 
is um, just general health reasons. Um, I thought it might be a good thing to get residency in the EU somewhere. And Paris made sense as a place to start because that's where I had like the most friends in Europe. And, uh, you know, the record label has an office there, so there's some support there. And, um, and it's, it's pretty easy to get around the world from Paris. So there's like a logical thing to it. You know, it's a charming city, but I'm not really like a, I don't know if I'm a full on like, you know, Paris nut. It's kind of a, I have to go, I have to go somewhere kind of thing. But really, I don't live anywhere right now. I don't have an apartment anywhere. You know, I'm about to go on tour. So a lot of my stuff is at my, um, at a friend's lockup in Paris. The other half of my stuff is at a lockup still in New York. Right now, I'm, I'm living pretty itinerantly. You certainly wouldn't be the first American artist to decamp for Paris specifically. You're definitely in a good lineage there. I wouldn't be the first one. And, you know, people are really tempted to make that comparison and continue that narrative and i understand why it is tempting i don't know if i'm going to stay in paris i mean i've got options and that's the point really is that i don't want to be associated with a place you know i've been associated with new york for so long and everything that's been written about me and parquet courts is having to do with us being like a new york band but i guess the, the point is right now that i don't really live anywhere and i'm not like of any place right now i have made the emotional an ideological decision to leave the US, that's for sure. I always find it interesting that parquet courts were spoken of like that, written about like that. Obviously, you, you actively engaged with New York and a lot of your music, but it seemed quite clear that you were also sort of a transplant band, that you you were from Texas. Like I, I listened to Teenage Cool Kids before parquet courts happened. Like that was what I knew you from originally, and Ferguson Geronimo and stuff like that. It, it seemed like the experience you were writing about in New York was very much from that of somebody who'd come to the city later on. I guess. I mean, that that always bothered me a bit because, I mean, I don't know that the band started in New York, and three of us were from Texas. But I, I'm I'm proud to say that we were a New York band, and I'm you know I'm still proud to this day to call myself a New Yorker. And you know, I left Texas for a, for a reason, and and that was to kind of wash the Texas off of me, you know? But one thing I've learned is that if you're from Texas, like people will remind you for the rest of your life, whether you like it or not, you know, people always want you to be from there first. And they always want to remind you that you're from there. And it's almost a thing like, no, you, you're not good enough to be called a New Yorker. You're still a Texan, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas you know, nobody calls the talking heads a Rhode Island band even though that is where they started. They started in Providence at RISD. You know, nobody points out how Thurston Moore is from Connecticut. Kim Gordon's from Los Angeles. Sonic Youth will always be a New York band for people, you know. But people do love to remind me that I'm from Texas and uh, that I'm a transplant, you know, as if most people in the arts community in New York aren't, you know. So, yeah, I'm from Texas. Yeah, for sure. Um, I haven't lived there in a long time. And I've certainly lived in New York longer than I lived, I've lived in any place. But, uh yeah, for some people, I will always be a Texan. And I guess that's fine. And some people are going to want to, you know, say that I'm a Parisian now just because it's gotten out that that's where I've been living. Um, but, I mean, the point is I just don't want any of this, really, right now. I just kind of want to be me. The implication of New York, I mean, that, that comes through very clearly on the record and Parquet Courts have been writing about increasingly on the last few albums was the, the economic implications of living there it, beyond healthcare, that just it's a city that has changed so rapidly and, and it just became 
almost impossible to be an artist. Had that always seemed impossible to you? Do you think it was you that changed over the last 12 or 13 years in regards to that? Or do you think it was New York that changed and became more inhospitable? Yeah, certainly both. And I can talk about both those things. I mean, well, for me, I was, you know, kind of a lucky person that lived in one apartment for a long time. It was rent protected, which, you know, doesn't mean the rent was frozen. It wasn't frozen, but it didn't go up by much in those 12 years. But meanwhile, in the city around that apartment, it went up astronomically. That was a rude awakening whenever I was like, well, if I move out of here, I'm going to have to get a, another apartment somewhere. And looking at the, the prices of, you know, of rentals and just saying, oh, my God, how does, how does anybody afford to live there? I felt so naive, you know, when, when, I, when I realized, like, what it costs to live in that city, you know, and what a good situation I had. But, I mean, you know, it was one of those situations where, like, I mean, there were holes in the floor. Sometimes there would be no heat. The landlord didn't want to help me an inch because they really would have rather me just moved out so they could charge market value for the place. It's a different city than the one I moved to, that's for sure. And, you know, one, one of the things I've always said about New York is you can't expect it not to change. And you can't expect it to be your version of it, you know. It is going to move on without you. And that's just what it is. It is always changing. So it, it really makes no sense to romanticize it too much because... You know, if you are always trying to reference a certain era of New York and say, well, it's not like that anymore, you're missing the point. Having said that, it was a different city when I moved to it. There was more access to art for young people when I moved to it. And that's just that's just less of a thing now. I'm not indicting the city for that. Um, and I'm not trying to complain. It's just a statement of fact, really. You know, when I moved there, within just a half a mile radius you know, there were like 15 different kind of DIY art spaces that was this really cool sort of community. And it's always been expensive, but this is before it was so expensive that it prohibited that sort of thing, which I think is, the, you know, the, the state it's in now. I was, I was talking to a younger friend of mine and kind of bemoaning, you know, why doesn't somebody your age, like, you know, start one you know another like diy space like this you know and he was like well i mean because people my age like you need a bigger kind of you know space to do that sort of thing and people my age can't put down like three months rent at one time on a space like that and i said fair enough you know i mean people my age can't really do that like it's just it's so tough the way that financially the city has changed is just tough on people. But at the, on the other hand, it's, a, it's an extraordinarily exciting place because it does attract a lot of creative people. But, you know, living like a really kind of bohemian life, which was my attraction to it originally, is much more difficult to do there. And um, I, I guess I'm interested in finding a place where I can do that, you know. I don't know where that is yet, but I changed, it changed, but that's just how it goes. You know, I, I still consider it a huge part of my identity, you know, and uh, that, you know, when people ask me where I'm from, that's what I say. I'm from New York, you know, because that's where I became who I am. My weekly dinner of popcorn and coke every Friday, like communion that I took as a joke. The tally, the weekends, when 
time had no hands to count the passing of the day spent with no decisions or plans. The bohemian life seems so intertwined with the sort of starving artist idea, which I, I don't. I, I hope I'm not quoting you out of turn here. But when you talk about the suffering myth, it seems to be hinting at something like this about like that that particular way. My mom does it with me all the time. Like, oh well, if you if you were able to pay rent, Alex, would you really be an artist? It's like actually, it would be really nice if I could like eat well. That would be great. Were those things always intertwined for you? Because they always they always felt certainly when I was younger and I when I first moved to New York, those things felt intertwined. And it felt like some of the things you describe on this record, some of the like eating popcorn and drinking coke and, and passing it off as dinner is part of the artistic experience. Well, I mean, I guess to be an artist is this sort of inclination to make your art by any means necessary. You know, you don't start making art once you're comfortable. You know, it's just this thing that you have to do and you have to get out of you. And for me, that's definitely remains the case. And I've just realized that that's the point of my life is to make art, you know, that's above anything else. And, um, you know, above ever say owning a home or owning a car, um, which I never have either. The most important thing to me is to make art by any means necessary. And that was the attitude for, for a long time in New York. And that's still a lot of people's attitude there. But, you know, if, if I paid significantly less rent somewhere, then I could probably, you know, spend more time making it or have more room to make it, you know? I mean, I know that you've only spent a very short amount of time in Paris, having come from New York. And now, as you say, you have this slightly more itinerant way of living just for the time being. And, and you made a lot of this record and recorded it in, in the UK, in the West of England. How, how, how does that routine change the way that you work? How sensitive are you to the life that you live day to day influencing your art? Because some of that, by any means necessary, can be almost attritional. Well, I can talk about living in France for the past few months, and that's just, it's kind of changed the way time, uh, time moves differently. I feel like I have a bit more of it, which is nice. In New York, I always kind of felt like I was attached to a cord that was just kind of pulling me through a city. And that's just, that, that also kind of, you know, influenced my personality. And I'm, I'm I feel like I'm always like, uh, always moving. No one describes me as chill, you know. But living in France over the uh, past few months, um, I felt like time moved a bit more slowly. I kept to myself a bit more. I'm not fluent in the language. I'm, I'm learning. I'm doing all right. But, you know, sometimes I'd rather just stay in and work on something than, than go out and, you know, have to have a conversation with somebody. Um, so I, I found more time just kind of being alone and, uh, and, and I, and I got a lot, I've gotten a lot done in the past few months, um, art wise. So, so far it's, uh, it's been great, but I, I, you know, I need to, I need to really build a new life. I need to build a studio. I need to you know, really set myself up so I can get into the sort of like routine of creation that I was in the States. And that hasn't happened yet. And it, it probably won't really feel like home until that does happen. I've read somewhere that this is your first time living alone. Is that true? Uh, that's true. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. I've always I've always lived with roommates, uh, you know, my whole life. I'm I'm sort of reticent to immediately jump to how you work, but I suppose 
to put it in a better way, like how's that changed your, your artistic process? I really, all I've done is rent apartments for a few months at a time. I've kind of turned those places into small makeshift studios, which was nice because, you know, I could work kind of whenever I wanted to, though, you know, these are apartments. They're not, they're not studio spaces. So I'm not like painting in there, but I was doing a lot of drawing, but it kind of like, yeah, like, like I said, it's, it's really hard to compare the two yet because I feel like I still really haven't gotten fully set up over here, you know? There's a, that particular sort of idyll that you describe in writing cobbles on this record. Is that too simplistic of me to think that that's aspirational? No, no, it kind of is. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very whimsical kind of song. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like a daydream, you know? It's, it's supposed to be a bit kind of naive and dreamy, kind of the hopeful dream, like an outsider looking to get in somewhere, you know? Milling brain into a flower, feeding dogs and losing hours, making noise while no one listens, cleaning brushes in the sink, then writing cobbles in the classics, wearing nothing made of plastics at the seaside, cleaning shellfish, reading more and speaking less English. Kathleen Alcott wrote the introduction to this record, the bio for this record. You, you had an excellent conversation with her a few weeks ago for Interview Magazine. There were some really interesting moments in that and one that stood out to me. I, I thought that she expressed really well something that I'd been struggling to, to pinpoint, which was this distinction between like antiquity and what you end up calling hyper nowness in your music. Are there artists from any genre, first of all, who who you think express that nowness really well? Are that where have you drawn that particular side of, of the influence from? I mean, hip hop does a great job of that, doesn't it? Because like by its very nature, like what it is is like a commentary on what is happening now and what culture is now. And for that reason, it is a bit disposable. I don't mean that in a way, in a, in a bad way. I mean that in a way where, like, eventually in the genre, it gets replaced by the next track. Um, and uh, it does. it's not one that really tries to cling on to the past. It doesn't really try to romanticize because it's always about, you know, now. So there's always references to, like, I mean, at this point, it's kind of an old, older song, but like a like hotline bling, you know, it's about texting. And it's like completely relatable for that reason, because uh, most people text. And I think, you know, when you try to avoid stuff like that, the realities of, you know, life, you kind of risk becoming like twee or pastiche or something. And I, and I really have no interest in that, you know. I guess with, with genres like rock or folk or country or whatever, like um, those are genres that are always kind of a bit tethered to their past, no matter how far they travel away from it, there's still a line directly connecting them to the origin point, you know? There are genres that work within a tradition. For that reason, I think it's interesting, you can talk about nowness, you can talk about, uh, you know, modern life and still, you know, be of that tradition. And I guess that's kind of what I want to do. I think that when you're an artist, what you're kind of doing, everything you do is kind of a time capsule for the day that you wrote that song, you know, or, or painting or photograph or whatever. Like you want to express 
because people are going to be listening to it in posterity. People are going to be looking back on it. And you want to be able to give them a sense of what that day in your life was like, what that time was like. I mean, that's one of the things that we, as humans, I think, as an audience, we find so captivating about art and why we're still attracted to art that surrounds events in history. Like, you know, earlier I talked about something being post-war, you know. We're still interested in framing things like that because what that art does is it basically is a time machine. It is a portal back into that time and it helps us understand history and it helps us understand life. So when people, you know, listen to, I guess, my music, I would like for them to kind of be able to get the chance to travel back into 2023 at some point in the future and and kind of get an impression of what, you know, life would like, you know. That's, I mean, you know, speaking of like romanticizing New York, that's why we still love like, you know, the Velvet Underground and the New York Dolls and the Ramones, you know, because they take us to the 70s in New York, you know. I, I've always been interested in this word as a writer, but the word timeless seems to me like it's an odd compliment, it, or maybe even a backhanded one. Hmm. Yeah, maybe. Years ago, there was a review in The in the Guardian, I think, about Exile on Main Street, saying like people will call this album, it was an anniversary, I assume the 50th, and they were saying, well, the, you know, people will call this album timeless, but like it's absolutely not timeless. It sounds like exactly the time in which it was made and exactly the point in these people's lives in which it was made. That's such a storied, part of the Stones history that, yeah, yeah, when I listen to Exile on Main Street, like I'm kind of, you know, daydreaming of them in a French villa, avoiding the tax man. Like it's, you know, it's, it's for me that, yeah, I know what you mean. It's not quite timeless. It is of a time. And, but that's the point, isn't it? I mean, it sounds to me like you, you find yourself intentionally writing for a listener in, in the future to an extent. Is that, is that fair? To, to an extent, I mean, I'm writing for people now, but uh, just as a fan of music, I'm cognizant that that is, you know, that it lives on and that, you know, people will be listening in the future. But I don't, I mean, no, I'm not, I'm not writing for people in the future. I'm writing for people now, for sure. It's, it doesn't make any sense to avoid the now in your art because then you're making timelessness, quote unquote, a goal. And that doesn't really quite make sense. And yet to draw these parallels between antiquity and the very modern, between this like hyper nowness, you are to some extent trying to draw that line between the past and the present, but between like you even comparing yourself to Joyce in Trieste, for example. I guess so. I mean, antiquity is, those are tools of language, I guess, that we have at our disposal. You know, language is a somewhat limited set of tools and we have been using the symbolism of antiquity since it was, well, since it was an antiquity, since it was, you know, since it was nowness. It's a language. It's, it, these, are, these are the shapes and sounds that we have to play with. Most artists, whether they know it or not, use kind of like a, a vocabulary, a, um, like a vernacular. And we pull them from, from everywhere. And so that's just, you know, the, but especially things from antiquity or older things are just kind of as, you know, anyone who you know, reads or is engaged with art. Like we've been telling the same old stories for a long time with the same kind of pieces. Uh, it's the perspective that changes and it's the perspective that keeps things interesting. You know, we've been saying, you know, the history of art has been kind of just a handful of 
the same stories told over and over again. But it's the it's the perspective and the way that you use that language and the way that you use those tools that you're given that keep that makes it compelling. You mentioned in that interview with, with Kathleen Alcott that th- these were songs that you would leave behind in a fire, and uh, it was I was curious about that that line because it's not really elaborated on. I was wondering why why these wouldn't be songs that you would carry with you, it, especially after that conversation about disposableness. Why, why do these songs have to be destroyed in your head? Oh, uh, I think I said I'd leave them behind to save myself. So, I mean, in the situation of a fire, you do have to let some precious things burn, don't you, in order to save yourself. The making of the record, you know, it did feel like a last act of sorts. And it did feel like there was a sense of urgency in my leaving yeah, I guess it can be summed down to that. It was kind of the last thing I did as an American. And then I got out with so much urgency that I didn't bother to even take the last thing I did with me. I mean, I have in a way, but that's the way I see it. Yeah, there's something about you recording this last American album in Bristol that feels quite <laughs> quite poetic in its way. You're not the first to remark on that. You know, that, that really comes down to... I mean, it's it's a bit unromantic, but it's it's quite a logistical thing. Like, I wanted to work with John because he's incredible. John likes to stay. You know, at this point, he's at the, a point in his career where he can just kind of stay close to home because people come to him, and that's just how it is, you know. But he's, I mean, he's he's a terrifically brilliant guy. It seems like there was that routine, though, with making the record that seems like maybe, to some extent, what you had been searching for since leaving the States. You know, you, he had to be out by seven o'clock every evening and you, you had to hit this pattern. Did you find that helpful creatively? Yeah, it is helpful because, you know, when he would leave, I would, well, I mean, we were, we were working quite full days. You know, everybody started early. And, and, and then when he would leave, we would maybe all go to the pub. And then I would go back and just kind of like listen back on mixes and then edit. I mean, I'm, I'm really, I'm a pretty staunch editor i always come to a recording session with lyrics you know enough lyrics i I don't understand people who like write while they're in the studio that to me that just sounds way too hectic like best to have it all ready when you're there but i do edit and uh and so i would when he would leave i'd go back and i would edit because I, i i tend to these days you know every line in a song i'll tend to write three or four times just so i can sort of find the core of what I'm trying to say in each line and figure out the best way to say it. And so there, you know, there was a lot of that. And sometimes that would go late into the night. And then, you know, the next morning I'd be like, okay, I've, I figured this, I figured this vocal out, like, let's do it. You know? So a lot of times the days would start with doing the vocal on, uh, this, the song we've, we finished tracking the day before. And, uh, and then I would spend the, the time in between, uh, you know, really editing and making and, and rehearsing too, because I, you know, you, you've got to figure out what you're saying and you got to figure out how you're going to say it. And then you've got to figure out, you know, how you're going to perform it because, you know, poetry, even aside from songwriting, which is, I think one of the things that, you know, keeps poetry a bit maybe mysterious and intimidating for people, but it's a performance, you know, it's meant to be read both by the, um, the author and by the, the audience. You know, when, when you have a book of poetry, you're meant to read it out loud. That's how you find the meaning in it. It's, it's made, it is an art form that is made for the voice. So 
I would spend a lot of time editing and I would spend a lot of time figuring out, you know, the cadence and the syntax and how am I going to deliver these words, you know. Uh, But I've worked with other producers that just work around the clock. And that can be cool because you can just kind of keep going. But I think that the breaks for this record with with John were important because it kind of helped me take those moments of of quiet back at uh, back in my the place where we were staying to kind of hone in on on certain aspects of it. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really, I'm more or less really proud with, well, with the, with the album writ large, but definitely with all of the, the lyrics that I committed to it. I think I chose the right ones. I think the song Mountain Time might be one of the most proudest, you know, lyrical moments on the record or even in the, my career for me, because uh, I, I really think with that one, I, I really got all the words just so. They, they really land back at me. I know exactly kind of, what I'm trying to say, and I think I, I did the best way of saying it. And I think the economy and uh, everything is one of the ones lyrically I'm most proud of, probably ever. Mountain time wasn't on my mind that morning. I shot out of bed, you were curled in a ball. a dim strip of amber across the edge of the earth and the black oily blue of the sky mountain time really feels like a, a song where you're writing about the end of, of of a lot of things this is quite a autumnal track there's a lot more romance on this album and the end of a lot of romance on this album than i think i've seen written about i personally would not qualify it as a breakup record because a breakup record is more something that's dealing with the past and i i think that more than anything to me it reads as an optimistic album and i think it's 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 a lot about the future as well i think that it is a hopeful album i mean it begins and ends with a sort of cautious and bittersweet type of hope like if you look at the songs um hurting or healed and then the song Out of Focus. I think that those, they're both a bit trepidatious, uh, a bit melancholic, but, but hopeful too. I think the last lines of Hurtner Heald are supposed to be quite hopeful, as are the last ones delivered on the last song of the record. Um, and first songs and last songs are important, I think, because they, they are, it's important to kind of benchmark some sort of idea of what the album is about that's that's usually where i would start if i were trying to figure out what any record is about is the first and last songs did you know from the jump that out of focus would be did you know after you wrote it that it would be the last song i can't remember if i knew that as when i wrote it i'm going to go ahead and say no i did not know that but it probably became clear pretty quickly and i think a lot of times I'll ask for people's opinion insofar as the sequencing goes. And so I asked um, John Parrish, I asked uh, my manager, James Oldham, I asked uh, Jeanette Lee and Jeff Travis at Rough Trade. And I think everybody put that one as a good choice for last. And uh, at, at, at that point, I was pretty much, I'd made up my mind that it would be the last track too. So it seemed kind of like a universal agreement there. You knew that you were were writing you knew that you were creating something hopeful 
it wasn't something where you looked at the lyric sheet afterwards and went, oh, wow, I've, I've written something with some hope shot through it here. You, you kind of knew as you were writing it that there was a sense of hope to this record. I did. And I, you know, I think, I think by and large, a lot of my, the stuff that I make has that quality to it. You know, I'm not a terribly pessimistic guy, but I mean, I, I do work with my own pessimism and I think it helps in art to be, you know, at least mildly agitated about something, you know, <laughs> there's gotta be some sort of message. And, uh, but I, I think by and large, I'm a, I'm an optimist, you know, and, and I, I would hope that that's something that comes out in the art that I make, even when it's angry and bitter, you know, which sometimes it can be bitterness doesn't, you know, it, it, well, like anything, it's, it's a tool at your disposal, but I guess it's depending on how much you use it is how much you let it sort of define you, you know? I think, by and large, I use optimism and hope as the main ingredient on a lot of things that I do. It's a, there's, a, there's a continuity there. But if you've got something left to say And you don't know how to start Just feed the birds your final words The day the hangman grows a heart And the pope turns back to pine And your lips are back on mine That was Andrew Savage in conversation with The Fader. His new album is A Savage, several songs about fire, is out now via Rough Trade Records. The Fader interview is engineered by Tony Giambroni. The executive producer is Alex Robert Ross, and the associate producer is Raphael Helfand. We'd like to thank Lauten Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them online at lautenaudio.com. And we'd like to thank James Ivey for providing our intro music. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you left a five-star rating and review. And keep an eye on thefader.com for essential music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Fader Interview. Goodbye until then. <laughs>